You are listening to episode 19 of the EU Startups Podcast. Today with Phil Libin, who founded companies like Evernote and All Turtles and raised a 100 million Series B round earlier this year. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the EU Startups Podcast. First of all, sorry for the longer pause, but we were quite busy with the organization of our upcoming Future Travel Summit, which will happen as an online event on November 24th. And we also just started with the organization of next year's in-person EU Startup Summit. Speaking of upcoming events, if you want to see the future unfold in front of your eyes, don't miss out the grand final of the EIT Health InnoStars Awards, where the most promising healthcare innovations of 2021 will be announced. EIT Health InnoStars Awards is a first-class talent competition in healthcare for startups from Central, Eastern and Southern Europe by EIT Health InnoStars. Even though they come from different regions, they have something in common. They all have the potential to revolutionize the healthcare industry and impact the future of medicine. The event will be broadcasted live at BioEurope's virtual event on October 27th from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Don't miss the pitches and the announcement of the winners, which you can also follow on the Facebook page of EIT Health InnoStars. And now, without further ado, let's jump right into today's interview, which has been recorded by my colleague Charlotte. Today we're happy to be joined for the next edition of the EU Startups podcast by Phil Libin, a serial founder and investor who no doubt has a wealth of tips, experience and knowledge to share with our listeners today. Phil is the co-founder and CEO of All Turtles, a mission-driven product studio, and was co-founder and CEO of Evernote, a tool to help people stay on top of their tasks and productivity. Previously, he was managing director at venture capital firm General Catalyst. And before that, Phil also co-founded Core Street and Engine 5. Now in his current startup called Mm-hmm, which in case you're wondering is spelt double M, H double M, uh, was created during the pandemic. And he's focusing now on making video communication more clear, compelling, and just generally a bit more fun. So hello, Phil, and thank you for joining us. Hello, thanks for having me. <laughs> um, is there anything you wanted to add? Did I miss out anything important? No, that, that all seems very, uh, very comprehensive. Okay, cool. Awesome. So I'll jump right in with the questions. So could you give us an inside look on your entrepreneurial journey? Have you always thought of yourself as a creative person, a creative personality, or is it something that's developed over time? Uh, I mean, my entrepreneurial journey has kind of been a, you know, the, I think it feels like a random walk uh, for mm -hmm. over, over the past few decades, but I think it feels that way to a lot of people. Like, uh, I certainly never had like a central plan for, you know, what I wanted to do and, 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 and kind of still don't. Um, I always assumed growing up that I'd be, you know, that I'd just have a job that it'd be an engineer or something. And, and that didn't, that didn't work out. I was having a hard time actually, you know, holding down a respectable job and starting companies wasn't really something that I ever was like specifically drawn to. It was just what I did yeah. because I had to, you know, keep busy. Uh, and yeah, it probably took a few decades to actually realize that that's a, that is an okay path through life. It didn't, uh, it, it felt like failure for the first <laughs> 30 years. Yeah. So were you someone who um, 
for example, did you have like little projects when you're at school? Like oftentimes you speak to entrepreneurs and they say, yeah, when I was um, when I was 15, I started selling lemonade or <laughs> anything like that. Yeah, yeah, I had all sorts of uh, companies and projects and you know scams all through you know since I was probably an, an early teen. Uh, um, I, you know, I was working. I I, I got into computers uh, pretty early on. Um, I, I moved with my family to to the U.S. from from what used to be the Soviet Union uh, in uh, in the early '80s. So I grew up in a really rough neighborhood in the Bronx, um, and uh, you know the gangs wouldn't have me, so I just pretty much just stayed in my room the whole time and mm -hmm. I begged my parents for a computer and they got me an early computer. And so I kind of got into programming from, you know, from, from the early eighties when I was a, when I was a little kid and, you know, there was always something to do. There was always somebody willing to pay money for, you know, some kind of computer stuff. Uh, and yeah, just kind of stuck with it and, and uh, started my first real company um, with some college friends of mine, you know, a couple of years after college. Cool. Um, so it was kind of, yeah, a way to keep busy at home, like staying away from the trouble on the streets with your computer. Yeah. I mean, it was mostly because the trouble in the streets didn't want, you know, didn't want me to participate. I wasn't cool. enough. <laughs> cool. Okay. So, um, so talking about the, you founded um, a fair number of companies. So when I was researching for this podcast, I was, I was looking at um, obviously what each company is focusing on. And I noticed that they, often well they're, they're focused on lots of different industries um so i wondered how you've 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 said before that you always focus on what the market wants um so how have you managed the challenges of relaunching each time in a new sector or does it just seem like it's um a new a new sector from the outside but actually from the inside you've you've found some commonalities between each no, it's, 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 it feels pretty random. Uh, you know, my, our, our first company was Engine 5, and that was, we didn't really know what we were going to do. I mean, the only thing we knew was it was going to be something that involved typing, you know, code into a computer, because that was, we were all mm -hmm. engineers, those are skill. Uh, and this was in 97, so it was right, right in the heart of the original, you know, dot-com bubble, when you just run around saying dot-com a lot, and, you know, people mm -hmm. work. Uh, and so there, we just wound up you know, working and building what was happening at the time, which was the beginning of e-commerce. So we built a lot of the first like e-commerce sites, you know, things that let you buy things on the internet, which was kind of a new thing back then. Uh, and, uh, you know, we sold that company and then we're trying to figure out what to do next. And we thought, well, we don't want to, we don't want to repeat what we just did uh, largely because we didn't, we never had a product. We were just sort of working. We were building other companies' e-commerce systems and sites. And that, that seemed, um, you know, you weren't really, we were, we were getting paid really well, but we weren't building a product that would have residual value. Like, you know, people would pay us, but then when we stopped working, they stopped paying us because we were basically consultants. So we said, okay, we want to build a product. So we were trying to figure out what that should be. And that was, uh, that was a month after September 11th. We were starting that second company, Core Street, on October 11th of uh, 2001. And I think everyone just, you know, a month after September 11th, everyone wanted to do something, you know, a little bit meatier, a little bit more meaningful than, you know, rent selling random stuff through a web browser. Um, so we, we, we started Core Street. Uh, we had, we had a brilliant co-founder from MIT, Dr. Silvio Bacali, and we, we went into kind of high-end security and, and encryption and cryptography. Did that for a bunch of years, six or seven, and then um, sold that company and we're sitting around with more or less the same team. Like there's the same group of people, except it, it grew with each company. And we said actually the opposite of, of, of what you just said. We were like, we are so tired of thinking about what the market wants. It's like the previous mm -hmm. two companies was all about what does what the customer want? 
you know, what do e-commerce retailers want? What is, what are big banks and governments and people who buy high-end security stuff want? And the third time around, we were just like, we're, we're done with this. We just want to think about what do we want? What if we build something for us, just something that we love? And that was the, that was kind of the inspiration for Evernote, um, really to just build something where we didn't have to care about the market or the customers. Um, no. And then, you know, it all, it, it, it changed several times in, in the next few. And so I'm on company number five right now, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, kind of depressing to say I've, 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 I've yet to demonstrate learning behavior and I've, I've started five companies, even though it isn't, it's something that I always warn people against. <laughs> okay. So that actually like runs into my next question, because I was going to ask you about um, Evernote and all turtles and your experience building. Um, well, those companies and the previous companies and whether you had it's, this is quite a difficult question because I think in reality, you're, your journey is not quite so um, punctuated by um, learnings that you can just pull out like in a nice um, succinct line, but um, from those previous companies, maybe one or two things that could be useful for founders who are listening that they could take on board. Well, I think um, a bunch. Uh, I think one uh, was uh, uh, Evernote uh, uh, for the first few years went really, really fast. Um, and it was, it was, I think, largely because we were doing this thing we were building for ourselves. Um, and like building for yourself is sort of a sort of a cheat code. It's like if you're playing a video game and you like find the cheat code and all of a sudden you're invincible. Kind of felt like that uh, because, mm-hmm. you know, if, if, you, if you just start with the premise that you need to have a really excellent product uh, to succeed in, in, in the current world, um, and, you know, it just takes a lot of iterations to make something excellent. Like it takes, you know, 10,000 iterations to make something great. Then it really comes down to how fast can you iterate? How fast is each cycle? And when we were building things, you know, from, from my second company for Core Street, we were doing large like government security stuff. You know, each, each iteration took like a year and a half because, you know, you have to like, you build something, you deploy it, you wait for a formal feedback process. There's like a review, you build something else, like 18 months go by between product cycles. And so, you need to get through 10,000 of them before your product's going to be really excellent. And each one takes a year and a half. That's, you know, 15,000 years until you get through a really excellent product. It's like too long. It doesn't fit into my yeah. time scale. But at Evernote, we were making stuff for ourselves. And so we could iterate every 20 minutes, right? Like every 20 minutes, we can make a change. And as long as we were being honest, we would be like, oh, is this better or worse? Is it better or worse? You can get through that, that same 10,000 iterations much faster within a couple of years. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like, that's a superpower. Uh, and so... It com- building for yourself, solving your own problems comes with all sorts of disadvantages, which is why we kind of stopped doing it after Evernote. Like for all turtles, we, we don't, we really tried not to do that. Um, mostly because like, I think this is part of the Silicon Valley problem is like, we're all trying to solve our own problems and our problems are very, very narrow slice of problems in the world. And there's many other people that are much more deserving to have their problems solved than, you know, the 10 company mm-hmm. founders. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm glad that like, we've moved past that. But uh, if I had to do it all over again, I would, I would, I would have made Evernote my first company because I think like if you're just getting started, you can learn so much and go so much faster if you're building for yourself and you can like figure out what, what this like company thing is all about and go much faster and learn a lot more. And then, you know, companies two through five or whatever, you can, you can build something for other people. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Yeah. Because I guess in that sense, you were your own target audience. So you're yeah. just testing yourself, yeah. Mm-hmm. Very, very much so. And and we're sort of doing it again unintentionally for mm-hmm, for the for the for the current company because uh, you know it started as a joke. Like we 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 didn't intend to build this as a as a real product or a company in the beginning. We were just trying to make ourselves laugh because everyone was so depressed and sad in the beginning of of, mm-hmm. of COVID. 
and so we started building this thing and it went really fast. And I was, re I remembered after a few months, I'm like, oh yeah, right. It's, it's kind of like early days of Evernote. Like we are once again, building something where we are the target audience and that has lots of problems, but man, it's really fun and it's really fast. Yeah. And in that sense, um, actually the, the challenge that you were trying to fix is something that people all over the world were, were, um, were facing, right? So yeah, it's it's more than just the the tech founders in Silicon Valley. So it has um it has a much bigger audience. Um, so um I actually had a question about um about that topic. Um, what were the exact pain points that you were trying to fix? You mentioned that you were just trying to make things more fun and kind of make each other laugh. Like, did you have any other um objectives um once you started realizing that it could actually grow into um a company that was sustainable? Yeah, the, it, it literally did start as, as just a joke. Um, uh, basically, we started working on it in May in, of 2020, um, which was, you know, a couple of months after we all went into lockdown. So we were working, you know, at All Turtles. We had offices in, in San Francisco, Tokyo, and Paris. We had a bunch of different projects. And then in March of 2020, we all, you know, we, we shut down all the offices, went fully distributed. And for the first couple of months, it was, you know, it was terrifying uh, because, you know, everyone's scared. You don't know, like, if everyone's going to die. Uh, but, but, you know, but a couple of months into it by May, like the sheer terror had sort of subsided and like what was replaced, it was replaced with just like tedium, right? Where everyone was just like at home on video all the time. And all of the meetings were so boring and ineffective and everything was just slow and sad and dingy. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, we just started, you know, playing around with video to just like literally just make people laugh a little bit in meetings thinking that, you know, we would do this for a few days and then, you know, that'd be that. Um, so initially we weren't really trying to solve any problems. It was literally like a practical joke. Um, but then as we started working on it and showing it, um, we, you know, the reactions were just really good, uh, with people. And then I had this, this, this moment in, in May when I think it got, I kind of started thinking about this as maybe a real product that's worth building is I had to teach a class. Um, I occasionally will, will like teach classes about various, you know, entrepreneurial stuff. And so I had to teach this class for, you know, some, some startup thing. Uh, and, um, I, I have done, I had done that topic many times before, but, you know, in person and they wanted me to teach it. I had to do it on video because of COVID. And I was like, oh man, like, this is going to suck. Like I've got slides and like being on video is just going to be boring. And like, I didn't want to do it. I wanted to cancel it because I didn't, I didn't want to inflict like 45 minutes of me, like droning on about state machines and, you know, metrics. It was like a little box and on a zoom call. Uh, so I was going to cancel it, but then I thought, well, wait, wait, well, what if I like use this thing that we've been playing around with mm -hmm. and uh, redo my like presentation, not to be like, not to think of it as like a substitute for what I would do in person, not to be like, well, I can't do it in person, but let me get as close as possible to the experience. But instead just be like, well, what if I just remake it from the ground up to be really good on video? What could I do? So I did that and I, and I gave the talk and I was, you know, flying around and pointing things with my head and fading out and just doing all of the, the mm -hmm things. And it was great. It was like very engaging. And I, I realized that like, man, like my class online is better than the experience of it in person. Like the, the, the people who sat through it were like lucky <laughs> that they, that they yeah. saw it online and not in person. They had a better experience. And that's what made me think like, well, actually maybe this isn't, maybe video isn't just like a short term band-aid until we can be back together. Maybe it's like its own thing that can actually be pretty amazing long past the pandemic. And that's how we started thinking about it. And it just kind of snowballed from there. Yeah, I had a question about that, actually, um, that that concept of not just trying to manage with video and model our way through, but actually see it as a 
a tool to actually improve upon um, either in person or remote and kind of see it as um, actually like a better, it could be a better version um, mm -hmm. of what you could have created in the first place, um, which I think is really interesting because I think nowadays many companies, many founders are trying to figure out how to how to self-organize, right? How to um, how to get through the next couple months, the next year, and whether they should go back to the office, whether they should um, have a hybrid working uh, method, whether they should stay remote. Um, so yeah, so on that on that topic, um, I, I was also reading about how you noticed that there were some of these kind of superpowers, as you called them, um, which you can actually get from working online, like working with people that you wouldn't normally work with. Um, so I think I think it affected all of us on, on a kind of a personal level. And we're, all, we're all trying to kind of decide how we feel about it. So seeing as you've invested in, in mm -hmm, and you're now growing it as a company and you, you've obviously decided that it's something um, that's worth continuing with. Um, I wanted to ask you um, about your opinion about remote working and your rationale for deciding how to self-organize your team and continue with remote work. Well, I think um, uh, I think first of all is like we're we're super um, careful and kind of try to be intentional about about even just how we think about it. And so like we, mm -hmm. I don't think it's remote. Um, I think we don't we don't say remote uh, just because like remote to me means. Uh, it immediately means at a disadvantage. Um, mm -hmm. You know, remote is like, well, you're sitting at home and like other people are gathering, you know, at a central location and like having more fun and like you're not. Uh, mm -hmm. we, we think it's like we were remote in the beginning when we had to, when we were like all of a sudden forced to like disperse. Yeah, that was remote. But once we sort of decided to, to design and architect the company to be distributed, we became distributed. Um, mm -hmm. and, and, and distributed like in the same sense of like the internet is distributed. Like the internet is a distributed system designed to be distributed intentionally because being distributed gives you so many advantages. Like you, the internet couldn't exist if it was, you know, a centralized system. And it's not like the people who like invented the internet didn't know centralized systems. Like those have been around forever. They explicitly decided we're going to build a distributed and here's, here's how, and here's why, because of the massive advantages in terms of, you know, resilience and, 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 and diversity and everything else. Um, and of course, like building a distributed system, like the internet, like several things are harder than building a centralized system. There's a bunch of things that being distributed makes more difficult, but you solve those things. You have to, you have to problem solve them, but it doesn't take away from the massive advantages. And so we, we think about it the same way. Like we have chosen to build fully distributed companies, not because we have to, not because we don't know how to all be in the office, but because it's better, because it's fundamentally better. Being distributed is not a substitute for being in person. It is superior to being in person for construction of a company for certain types of companies and certain tasks, obviously not for everything. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that's like, that's the main philosophy is like, how do you, how do you lean into the superpowers, the massive advantages? And then once you kind of understand that, then you figure out how to solve the problems that also come along with being, with being distributed. Um, so to me, you know, for, for, for our industry, I have, I have hundred percent conviction about it. Um, uh, you know, the fact that just as a minor example, um, you know, we're all knowledge workers, everyone, everyone who works at our companies basically like to be doing creative work, entering information into a computer, you know, making design, do that kind of stuff. Like 0% of our employees waste any time commuting. It's a minor thing, but it's actually like just that is enough. Like, 
before, I think the, the average commute time, I think worldwide is like two hours every day. So like mm-hmm. nobody at our company is wasting two hours every day commuting or, or any time, which is like, which is shocking. Like it would be, it would be, it would be a, a dereliction of duty for me to like tell people, you know what, like, okay, everyone, now you have to waste two hours every single day sitting in traffic. Like, yeah, yeah, you didn't have to do it before, but now you do. And, you know, uh, yeah, you can't actually get any work done because it's not very productive and it's not time that you're spending with your family or your friends. And it's like pretty unhealthy. Oh, and it's terrible for the environment. But, you know, CEOs decided two hours every day wasted sitting in traffic. Go. Mm-hmm. Like just not doing that is kind of an amazing superpower. And that's like the tip of the iceberg. There's so much more that, you know, I get 100% of our job listings say global. So we hire people literally from everywhere in the world for every job, which is, which is amazing. Uh, everyone who works in our companies can afford to have a good lifestyle because they can live anywhere and they make the same amount of money. Uh, and so if you want to live in a city, you live in a city. If you want to have like a nice house and a nice neighborhood with good school districts, you, you do that. And you don't have to like wait for 20 years until you retire or 40 years. You can do it. You can do it. You can do it right out of college if that's what you want. Um, there's, and, and, and people are much more productive uh, because productivity is no longer productivity and advancement is no longer tied to the personality types that do well, like being like, uh, you know, attractive and, and, and charismatic in person in an office setting. Like now, mm-hmm. like advancement and productivity is based on like your ability to actually contribute. And so there's like plenty of people, for example, that are super creative, but, uh, don't like, don't want to talk or don't want to like think as fast as I do because like they want to like think through an idea a little bit more. So if they're there in a meeting, like I'll just say the first thing that pops into my head. Sometimes it's right, you know, maybe more than half the time, sometimes it's wrong, but it's okay. It's like very fast. And, you know, we bounce ideas over each other and we like come to some consensus, but there's a lot more people who are like, well, I'd rather like think through an idea for a few hours before I blurt it out in a meeting to the CEO. And in the past life, when we used to do all of the design sessions, all like piled into one room, like those people didn't get very far. But now everyone does because it's all like asynchronous. So it's like, it's, it is an amazing, it is a breathtaking increase in overall productivity, quality of life and everything. And yeah, it comes with some problems and those problems need to be solved and we're figuring them out and we figured out some and not others yet, but the advantages are monumental. So I've never given up. Mm, okay. Thank you. That's, that's um, really interesting to your point of view because um, there's, there's so many people discussing this topic at the moment and um yeah. it's affecting all of us right so um yeah so thanks um so i had um a kind of curious enigmatic question for the next one um i was reading that you uh when building a business you've spoken about paying attention to the numbers three and ten <laughs> which at first glance sounds um really like off the wall but um i was wondering if you could explain that more for um any founders who might want to use this methodology yeah, so this is this is not my rule. This is a, this is a Hiroshi Mikitani. Uh, Mikitani-san is the founder and CEO of Rakuten, which is uh, uh, you know, started in Japan. It was, it was one of the big Japanese kind of internet companies. Now it's worldwide. They do things in you know every country. Uh, and um, uh, Mikitani-san or, or Mickey, uh, as he goes, he's been just a great uh, mentor. He's an investor in, in 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 a bunch of our stuff. He's been a good a good friend and a mentor to me. I've written several books, uh, a few of which are, in, are, are available in English, and I definitely recommend people uh, to read them, or in Japanese, if you can read Japanese. He was one of the very, very rare people who was the CEO of a company. He was like the first person there. So he was there when it was, when it was just him, 
and he's still the CEO. And I think now it's like, I don't know, a hundred thousand people. So like going from like one to a hundred thousand is like almost nobody can do that. Like, you know, Jeff Bezos maybe, and or him. And like, there's like very, very tiny handful of people who are good CEOs at all levels. And um, he talks about this rule of three and 10, which is basically that every time that, every time that your company triples something important, uh, everything breaks. Uh, and it's three and 10 because it's, you know, it could be three and nine, but then you have to like keep, you know, keep multiplying by three, which gets hard for people. So you just basically, <laughs> the shortcut is three and 10. So the idea is like, if you're like one person and you're just running your own thing and you've got kind of got things figured out and then you like bring on a second person to like assist you and everything still kind of works. And then you bring on a third person and everything breaks. Cause like you just went to three. So now you have to like redo everything and you're pretty good until you hit like roughly 10 people. And then like at roughly 10 people, everything breaks again. And then you figure it out and then you're like pretty good until you get to roughly 30 and then everything breaks again and then a hundred and then 300 and then a thousand, you know, and so on. So it's basically like roughly every tripling um, of every time an important thing triples, assume that everything's going to break and try to anticipate it. And the most obvious thing is just headcount, but, but it's really true of everything. It's like every time your revenue triples or every time like your number of offices triple or, you know, all of it, whatever, whatever it is, like, a tripling, like assume is just going to break everything. And by everything, I really mean everything. I mean, like how you communicate, you know, how you pay people, what your strategy is, what kind of tools you use, how you do your expenses, like everything just breaks roughly at every triple. And a lot of, a lot of startups when they're, when they're growing quickly, they get into trouble because they miss several triplings. Like maybe they like get some stuff figured out by the time they're like 10 people, but then before they know it, there are a hundred people and they've just like blown through, you know, two, two of these tripling events. And they're still using like processes and tools that they set up back when they were 10 people and it's completely broken and, you know, and, 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 and unsatisfactory. Um, and so you should just have to like be aware of that and plan for it. Um, and one of the most important things that breaks is, is leadership style. So, you know, just as a, for a founder and for a CEO, what's been working for you in terms of how to get people on the same page and productive and organized at 10 people is unlikely to keep working at, at 50 and, mm. and almost, and almost certainly not going to keep working at a hundred or, and then at 300 and so on. So it's just, it's a way to like remind yourself that like, as you grow, everything's going to change. Mm. Okay. So yeah, to stay nimble, keep aware of everything, even your own leadership style. Um, yeah. And, and, and not try to be like, like there's no, you can never conserve something. You can never, you can never prevent change. Like you shouldn't try. So, you know, if you're thinking about like, oh man, like think about our culture and like now we're at a few hundred people, but like, how do I make sure the culture doesn't change? I want to like keep the culture the same that it was when it was 10 people. And the, the, the answer is you can't, you can't mm -hmm. keep the culture. You can't preserve anything. If you try to preserve it, it becomes brittle and it, it'll shatter, it'll break. Uh, so you can't preserve it. You just have to let go of it. Like, like being, in a, being a startup entrepreneur is a fundamentally not conservative thing. You cannot be attached to the way something was. You must always be thinking about the way something should be. And so you can't prevent something from changing. So if you really like something, it's going to change. You can't prevent it. You can't attempt to, you shouldn't attempt to, 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 to hold back the change. Instead, what you can do as the founder and CEO is to, is to change intentionally. So you can't like, you can't prevent your culture from changing when you go from 10 people to 30 to hundred, but you can say, how do I want it to change? How do I want it to evolve? You could drive the change. That's, that's doable, but like, you can't, you can't react in a reactionary way and try to, and try to prevent it. So it's this idea of not more than just nimble. 
It's about embracing and loving change and not trying to hold it back, but trying to, to steer and direct it. Mm, that's interesting because I think one of the questions that startup founders, or, or the founders of scale-ups, fast-growing scale-ups often get asked is how have you maintained your company culture? Um, yeah. I've never heard it um, spoken about that way. So that's yeah, really interesting and unique. So I had uh, one more question which is based on your experience, both as a managing director of uh, General Catalyst and also um, your experience of growing mm-hmm, and the, the video uh, the video meeting world. Um, and of course your talk, which you did for the EU Startup Summit on how to make sure that your, your virtual pick, pitch doesn't suck. So could you give our listeners, um, do you have any top tips for pitching virtually? Maybe you have three tips or one or two, it doesn't really matter how many, but um any top tips well i'll tell you the, i'll tell you the main thing um which uh really isn't just about pitching virtually it's just about pitching in general uh how you accomplish this will change maybe virtually you have more freedom to do it uh but it doesn't change the fundamental thing that the fundamental thing that people need to realize is what your job is as, as when you're pitching what is your job and um uh look at it like this like when i was when, actually when i was at general catalyst when i, when I was investing there I, I counted um how many startups i interacted with every year um and i, I realized that i interacted with about three thousand startups a year so i see three thousand pitches uh mm-hmm. of those three thousand i i took meetings with about 500 mm-hmm. um and i invested in three so that, and, and that was a very typical ratio for like relatively early stage tech. That wasn't like, I wasn't being particularly productive. In fact, I was less productive than a lot of people in the industry. And now like, I'm not a full-time investor. I still see at least a thousand startups every year, probably more, probably like 1500. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you're, if you're talking to someone, uh, if you're pitching, you have to understand that you have to be the most impressive thing that the investor has seen in a year or else you're not going to get an investment. Like that's your bar. You have to be the most impressive thing that they've seen in a year. Not, not the most impressive thing before lunch today, not the most impressive thing this week, not the most impressive thing in the past month. Unless you're like the most important thing, the most impressive thing that they've seen in the past year, you're basically not going to make it. So mm-hmm. you have to ask yourself, like, how are you going to be, like, what is so impressive about this? How are you going to be the most impressive thing that they've seen all year? And to whom? And, 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 and there's multiple ways of being really impressive. You know, so for example, like if you're at a growth stage, a really good way to be really impressive is if you have amazing traction. You can like show investors some numbers, some traction for real, and they'll be like, oh my God, this is like the most impressive traction I've seen all year. Great, you're done. You're going to get investment. Um, you know, but you can't fake that. Like if you, if, and if you're just starting out, of course you can't do that because you don't have any numbers. So, um, you know, in the beginning, like of mm-hmm or of Evernote, we didn't have that. So we, we couldn't be, we can't be the most impressive traction you've ever seen. So you have to be the most impressive in some other way. Maybe you can be the most impressive because it's like the most impressive team. Maybe you're like a rock star, super famous founder, and you've got this amazing team and you could be like, oh my God, this is the most impressive team I've seen all year. Okay. But most people don't have that. I certainly didn't, never had that. Um, so what was left for me and for most people, at least at an early stage is, I have to be the most entertaining pitch that they've seen all year. And you just have to internalize that. Like if you're pitching Mr. Startup Founder or Ms. Startup Founder, you gotta be the most impressive thing that the investor has seen all year. That's just how the numbers work. And uh, you know, potentially one of the few ways to do that is just to like be entertaining, like be aware that this is theater you, and you're the entertainment for this time. And if you bore them, 
you're, it's just like, you're, you're done. You can't, you can't bore investors. You have to be entertaining, which, you know, I do by telling jokes and doing a lot of jazz hands, obviously different people have different styles. You got to find like the right balance, but like the main philosophy is it is your job when you're like standing in front on whether it's on video or in person, an investor, and you are one of 3000 early stage startups that they've, that they've just seen in the past 12 months, you really got to stand out among, at least among the last thousand, at least among the past year. And a very good way to do that is to just be memorable, be entertaining. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, and video gives you all sorts of superpowers for doing that, which is much harder to do in person. You can think about, you know, making interactive slides of your face and like the things you're showing about, and you can like, you can, you can, you can tell a story in many more amazing ways on video, especially interactive video than you can in person. That's why like, there's so much more, you know, it's like the difference between like a, a, a movie and, and theater. Like you can do a lot in theater, but you can do a lot in a movie. So, mm-hmm. you know, think about doing that. And that's one of the reasons why I think we started and why it's getting so much traction among people who are pitching is because like, yeah, obviously you should, you can just make, you can tell a really compelling story with it. If you, if you think about how to use the tools and you can do it very scalably because, you know, you, if you, if you do it as a video, you can get it. It costs you nothing to have every single investor on the planet, see it, if that's what you want. Again, movie versus theater. You don't mm-hmm. have to perform from scratch every single time, you know, uniquely. And, you know, so it's a, it's both more entertaining. So it's easier to be the most impressive thing all year. And you have, you have, you know, much more top of the funnel. You can talk to, you can be exposed to several hundred investors versus a dozen, which is what it would be like before. And then any who are interested, you then take it to the next level and you have a, you know, more of a real synchronous discussion. And, you know, if you, if you've only talked to 10 people, your chances of being the most impressive thing that any of those 10 have seen all year is lower than if you've talked to or not talked to, but been exposed to a thousand people, then you have a much higher chance. And I think, um, as you said, like once you make an, an impression, once you once you're memorable, it also creates a, a connection, right? You're going to stick in their stick in their mind, um, and yeah. then yeah, exactly. This, um, this is the main thing, right? It's like you gotta, you know, I, I get it because I've been raising money for you know the past twenty seven years nonstop for all sorts of things. I hate it, uh, but like you have to get out of your own head. Like if you're if you're a founder and you've been thinking about this this company, it's been the by far the most important thing to you for the past year, two years, three years, you know everything about it. It's not boring to you, but it's, and it's so difficult, like when you're pitching to get out of that mode and to, and to be like, see yourself through the eyes of the investors and be like, for them, they haven't been working on it for the past three years and they haven't been in, invested in it and it hasn't been the most important thing and they don't know everything about it. So is like, if, if you just see yourself through their eyes and just ask like, I, is this is this a good, entertaining, and impressive performance? So like, what, what about it is like so exceptional? And if your answer is like, well, nothing about it is exceptional, it's only exceptional to me because I've spent the past three years on it. Then that's that's a weak place to be when you're pitching. You have to be exceptional to them. Very interesting. Good point. Um, and yeah, I hope there's some founders who are listening who might be preparing for a pitch at the moment. They've we've caught them in time, <laughs> and they they can take that on board. Um, so, so yeah, that was my last question. So um, all that's left to say is thank you for joining us and um, giving your insights on creating your, your previous companies and um, in pitching and your thoughts on remote work. Um, and yeah, we look forward to seeing what happens in the future and how mm-hmm grows and, and any other projects that you start in the future. Uh, thank you. Thanks, Charlotte. Um, thanks for having me on.